Welcome back, readers. This is Fantastic Books and How to Read Them. Today we're covering in episode 3, Name of the Wind, chapters 16 through 22. What'd you say a second ago? Oh, um, listen, viewers. In theme of the dismal state of the world of quarantine, prepare to get your heart ripped out because these next few chapters are just soul-crushing. Oh, they're so sad. He it did say that the book was going to take a darkward, downward turn, and it does not disappoint. No. And like all great heroes, you kind of need to suffer in order to grow from it and get to your get big moment. It's just a really long suffering period. I know. That's why I also was like... Not hesitant, but I was like, all right, I'm ready. Just... Oh, yeah, you didn't want to record today. Yeah. <laughs> well, to match our mood, it's snowed in the middle of April, so... It's a perfect day for this. Yeah, the the atmosphere outside matches the atmosphere in the book. <sighs> Let us begin. All right, chapter 16, Hope. Less. <laughs> <laughs> no, the actual title is chapter 16, Hope. Hope. I don't even think we need to talk about the first few paragraphs of just, like, life goes on after Ben leaves, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, but it's like, you know, again, with this dismal state of affairs, it's not the same without Ben there. He's learning things from Shandy and from Trip and everyone, but he's missing Ben. This is when his mom teaches him courtly rankings. Yeah. So Another it's just little... kind of filler. But it's also interesting because I think a few chapters ago was when he warned us that things were going to be turning down. And then there was the party chapter, which was obviously really fun. And then this chapter opens and it's it seems like life is going back to normal. So you're like, okay, all right. All sense of security. Fine. And then your heart just gets ripped right out. So it all starts with this fallen tree. I know. The tree falls down and his parents send him away to gather some herbs or something. He says it doesn't even matter. It just is one of their habits where he gets sent away so his parents can have some alone time and it's a mutual understanding of everyone that like it's time for some privacy because we're all always like on top of each other in the wagons. Yeah, a little, so, little time apart. Before we get into what happens next, there is an interesting little comment that Arladen makes that I didn't pick up on it the first time reading through this on the second time. It's a little clue where when the tree's knocked down, it's he like, say? he was saying, I'm surprised they haven't cleared these trees yet that they had, um, there was like a storm like weeks ago, like or span ago, they should have cleared all the trees by now. What is that clue? What are you talking about? Well, the, the Shandrian, they knocked down the tree to get them to stop. Oh! Yeah. Oh my and, gosh, I never noticed that. Yeah, the first time reading this. So Ugh. that to me was like really cool that I didn't pick up on it the first time. And on the second read, this wasn't just a tree knocked down due to negligence. It was purposely knocked down to bar their way in order to kind because of set them up. Because people have been singing the wrong sorts of songs. Oh, that's so cool. I hadn't yeah. realized that. Oh man, all right. A little clue. And then so, yeah, Kavoth goes into the woods and it's really... Sad and beautifully written what Patrick Rothfuss writes. He basically says this is like the last time he has his innocence of childhood while he's in the woods. And he hopes that his parents weren't just bickering or like doing mundane yeah, things. Yeah, he hopes it was like a very peaceful, loving but simple last few hours. And it's so sad. Yeah, it's uh, it's heart-wrenching. It's so sad. So he comes back, obviously... To the smell of burning hair and blood, bodies are strewn about, and it, it's immediately clear that he's in shock as the narrator, because he just kind of, like, wanders through the camp, 
and sees Taryn with his, like, sword broken and his legs are twisted unnaturally and he just kind of, he's numb and he walks through it. He says he he feels like he's thinking through syrup, so. Yeah, his mind just clearly, falling. Which is obviously how anyone would react in this situation. If you leave and everything's fine and you come back. And, like, every, like your family's literally been, like, gruesomely murdered. Your camp is, like, on fire. Everything's just destroyed. But there's some things that are, like, still... Like it was clear as if they were in the middle of cooking dinner. Like, the there's a pot. Shandy's fire's still going with her boiling potatoes are still in it. So he just kind of hones in on that as, as the one normal thing his brain can latch on to. Like an anchoring point. And it's so sad to... For me to visualize it from, like, kind of, like, a bird's eye perspective of, like, all of this, like, massacre around him. And then this little kid, because he is still young. Yeah. He's only 12. Just kind of mindlessly trying to tend the potatoes and and cook dinner still for no one left. Potatoes. <laughs> I know. It's so sad. It's so no, sad. No, horrible. But, like... Oh, it's, it's really, I think that's what gives it such a sense of realism is the fact that, you know, another author could just be like, the camp was destroyed and everyone was dead and he's just walking through it. But to add that little fixture of realism of something that's so familiar amongst it all makes it that much more real for him. Mm-hmm. So after he tries to cook, a couple of tents catch on fire and this kind of jolts him out of his, I guess, trance and he hears voices. And this is where we start to get clues that things are very bizarre. So he's going towards his parents' fire, and he, he gets really dizzy um, and reaches out to hold onto a wagon wheel. And he grips it, the iron on it just crumbles away like rust. And if we remember, rust or rotten wood was one of the signs of the Chandrian that was mentioned earlier in the book. So we are these clues that had come up earlier now right in our face. And from here, he sees a group of people around his parents' fire. These are obviously the Chandrian. And this one person who he sees is, he's just like an ice person is the way I would think of him. Like he's, he's pale. Everything about him is described as cold and sharp, except for he has black eyes, which are the ones that Ben mentioned. Someone having black eyes or goat's eyes. So this character, Cinder, is just a disturbing image in my mind. He's got perfect teeth and Kavoth describes him as having the expression a nightmare wears and he comes over and is just toying mercilessly with Kavoth. Oh, what's your name? Who Whose fire is this? Where are your parents, little boy? And that's what just makes it so much more disturbing to me is that Such like- Such a villain. It's not even like he comes over and kills Kavoth or has some sort of grandiose of like, look what we've done. And we're, we have so much- <laughs> We've power. murdered your parents. Well, like we, we're, yeah. we hold the power right now. No, I get that. He comes over and he's just toying being such- them. A jerk. Yeah. Such no, a jerk. Such a villain. And at this point, someone calls him out for being out of line and just tells him to, you know, send send Kavoth to the painless blanket of his sleep. Okay, just... Murder the boy. <laughs> kill the boy. So this voice is coming from a character named Haliax. Haliax is the leader of the Chandrian... He immediately pulls rank over Cinder and says, I protect you. You are a tool in my hand, which he says a couple of times. At one point, Haliax says Ferula and Cinder staggers. He's in pain. His grace disappears. So I don't know if that's a binding or if that's Cinder's true, true name. name yeah. But he does say that 
he knows Cinder's true name, so I'm not sure if that's it or not. That is a cool part, though, because he does make like this important statement of, I protect you um, from the singers, the emir. Yeah, so he says he's protected from the emir and the singers. In the Sith, or Scythe, and so... We kind of come into these characters later on, but I do enjoy the fact that they do list the singers as a potential threat. And in a way, we could attribute is, the singers as the Edema Room. Is singers capitalized like a specific group of singers? Nope, it's all lowercase. Oh. But that's the thing. The singers could be anyone, and anyone of the one family could be the Edema Room. And that's the kind of whole reason why they're here. Right, How the so they out- tells... Kavoth that somebody's parents had been singing the wrong type of songs. Mm-hmm. And while Kavoth's parents were researching Sandrian and finding out their true names, there was a reason why Ben was hesitant to speak their names out loud. I think it's also why they were having so much difficulty pinning down any kind of information. And we see later in the book, it's absolutely impossible to get any straight answer about who the Shandrian are what their purpose is, what their powers and skills are, what they're doing, where they have come from. So the fact that Arlid and Kavoth's father was searching for them made him a target. And they clearly had pegged that, I think, earlier in the books. I am assuming the Shandri are kind of like an omnipotent group. I don't really know. I think part of it, too, is since he was looking up their names and practicing the song over and over again. Well, I think what triggered it is when he finally sang it out loud remember last chapter at the party he he sings the first verse out loud and then they immediately appear i think it would have been a little more harmless if he kept it to himself but i think even by the time he had sung it they had already marked him as like a target and that was just the thing that pushed them over the edge yeah so so kavok's in a state of shock he's Obviously terrified and horrified the fact that his entire family has just been slaughtered and his camp's been destroyed. And here are these supernatural beings standing over it all. Like I said, Haliax was kind of pulling Cinder back from being cruel. And it's interesting because Haliax says, I'm glad I decided to accompany you today. So I don't think he often goes out with the Chandrian when they do his bidding. So I'm not sure the different if... signs too. Yeah, that could... Well, I think all of the Chandrian are there, aren't they? Yeah. Or at least five, four or five of them. But I'm wondering if he came because Arladin was, like, such a foe to be reckoned with. Or if Kavoth has been marked by them in some way as, like, someone to watch out for in the future. I'm not really... I think, honestly, he's saying, I'm glad I came with you today because Cinder is just... He's been getting the bidding done, but he's been kind of straying away from, like, the mission and just indulging in his own personal Right, tendencies. right. But, like, why did he come? Haliax? Yeah, did he come to keep an eye on Cinder? Did he come because this was a very important, like, mission? I think both could... That could be another interpretation, but I think when he says that statement, I believe it's because he wanted to basically make sure Cinder follows in line, stays in line. That's true. And in that same sentence, he does say... Cinder and some of the others seem to have forgotten what it is we seek and what we wish to achieve. So they clearly have a goal, but we don't know what it is yet, no. unfortunately. But that is interesting because it is difficult to pinpoint the purpose of the Chandrian. A lot of people just like don't know or attribute them to, to being kind of a general foe or a bad guy in stories. And it's just like, oh, they're bad, but clearly they have a, a goal yeah. that they're working towards. 
And this conversation is interrupted when some group of people come. So Haliax says come, he turns himself into like a shadow and then they all disappear into him, which is so so bizarre. I don't really understand what happens there, but somehow they have... It's kind of like a shadow warp. That's the best way I describe it. Like he like emanates darkness and then they all just kind of like portal out. Are they going into a different place though? Or are they going into the Fey realm? I don't know. It's so cool. It is cool. It's very cool. Um, I don't know. I think it's a boss move. It's like, all right, homies. Like, oh, it's really cash cool, out. but like, I just don't understand what he's doing. Yeah. It's wild. Like, he spreads his arms and like shadow comes all up and around him. It's very cool. So the they that Haliax is referring to for anyone who's read the books, because obviously we said there are spoilers in here, I'm assuming is the Emir, which are... We'll go into them much later when they come up in more detail, but in general, they are the enemies of the Chandrian. And I was reading a fan theory the other day that Kavoth has been picked out by the Amir from birth. And um, Ben Lacklith, who comes up in the next chapter in Kavoth's dreams, and I think one other person were all Amir, maybe Scarpy, yes, all Amir sent to guide Kavoth like on his journey. That's cool. Which is why that they showed up so quickly here because they already had their eyes on Kavoth. Interesting. So I think that's pretty cool. Obviously, it's just a fan theory, but the fact that like Kavoth may have been picked out from birth for destiny is really fascinating. Yeah. Especially once we learn more and more about his possible genealogy in book two. The chapter ends. He goes back into shock. He tries to dig a grave for his family, which is really sad. He finds his wagon where the horse had dragged it and climbs inside and is sleeping in his parents' bed. And, like, it's... It still smells like It still smells like them. It's very melancholy. Um, But, unfortunately, he falls asleep and the wagon catches on fire because he left the candles burning. Which sucks because if he had been able to keep that wagon, I think his fate would have turned out entirely different. But... He loses everything he has except for, like, a couple of coins and his loot. I don't even think it's Ben's his loot. Book. It's his it's father's his... loot. Yeah, but, like, it'd be one thing if he had a, a whole wagon to live in or cooking pots or fabric and... or cloth or clothes or medicine or literally anything. But he has a loot, a book, and I think a couple of coins? Nope, I don't even... He doesn't even mention that. So because of that, he just goes right into the woods and basically has nothing and has nobody left. Truly empty and alone. Chapter 17. Interlude, Autumn. This is just sad. (laughs) As soon as I flipped the page and saw what chapter it was, I went, oh, it's such a heart-wrenching chapter. It really is. Anyone who reads this, it doesn't cry. You're just a monster. (laughs) Literally, oh my god, the first time I was just like, oh no. So. I love our like trope of whenever something's really sad, you just go, shut the fuck up and close the book. <laughs> it's too much to handle. I know, my characters are having problems. Yeah, my characters are having a really tough time. Uh, Alright, so let's get it over with. I know, uh, let's be done with it. <laughs> Rip off the bandaid. So, we're back at the Waystone Inn. And we have a stoic Kavoth holding up a hand for Chronicler to take a pause. And he basically chides Lost for, for pitying him. Yeah. And he was basically saying, you know, this happened a long time ago. 
What do you expect? I told you this was going to be a tragedy. This is my life. Do you expect me just to beat my chest and cry and curse God that all this has happened to me? He's like, unfortunately, time is a great healer and life goes on. He definitely has accepted it in a way where he's like pocketed it away and built up walls around this this memory. Yeah. I don't think he's... Throughout the book, he doesn't really talk about his family or his origins besides identifying as a Demaru. Like, he never really tells anyone about his parents or what happened to him. So he puts it under lock and key and kind of, I think... Just buries it. Yeah, like, it's a motivating force for him as a character, but he doesn't bring it up very often. Yeah. Kavot then tells them, you know what? It's getting a little late. I'm going to go chop some wood for the fire. Or I'm going to gather some wood for the fire, sorry, and... We'll get some food together and we'll continue on with the story in a minute, which leaves Chronicler and Bost to have a conversation that Bost is telling him that he, his hope is that while Kavoth is going through his memories, it'll improve his mood and get him out of this dark way that he's been in for so long mm-hmm. at the Waystone Inn. I don't think Bost expected it to be such heavy memories. No. Though. Not at so all. So I think he's a little bit nervous now. Because originally he was excited that Kavoth was going to tell his story and hopefully shake off this funk, like you said. But yeah, what's been coming up in terms of content, I think, is kind of shaking him a little bit. Yeah. So we get Kavoth outside of the Waystone Inn, just piling some firewood into the wheelbarrow. And it's just so sad. There's like these like couple of pieces of wood that just drop into the wheelbarrow. And it just goes slower and slower. And then Kavoth literally just breaks down onto his hands and knees outside and just silently sobs into his hands. Oh, and it's just so sad. <laughs> so sad. Because it's like, it's it's mourning your childhood, it's mourning your parents, it's mourning like the beauty of everyone that was in his family, of the Adimaru. There's just so much complexity to it that he, of what he's mourning, including like the current state in which he's in. So, oh, it is just, it's heart-wrenching in that. And I think at the time it happens, especially in these upcoming chapters where you see him kind of reeling from the shock of it all, he doesn't ever break down and process it and cry. No. He, he's kind of just in like an empty, almost animal-like state. And so I think this is one of the very first times, there's one other time he cries about his mother, I think in the second book. But this is, I think, the first time he just actually takes it all in and truly realizes how much he's suffered as a person and lets himself not feel sorry for himself, but just truly mourn. Yeah, like the gravity of the loss. All right. And on that wonderful <laughs> note, is the end of chapter 17. End of such a sad section of chapters, and it's only going to get worse from here. That's the spirit. Chapter 18, Roads to Safe Places. So we're back in our story of young Kavoth. His family, unfortunately, was just brutally murdered by the Chandrian. Mm-hmm. And he is wandering alone in the woods. Now, this chapter starts with a really awesome, I guess, piece of psychology. I'm not sure if it's based on any actual psychology, because I tried Googling it, but then went down a, a very different rabbit hole of fan theories and like book stuff. But it's believable to me. It's just really interesting. And I think it's really interesting and fascinating, and it explains exactly, like, how the characters are. Or, I guess, just Kavoth, like, what he's experiencing. Right. 
the way Patrick Rothfuss writes, he's talking about the ability to cope with pain and that there's four doors of the mind that people must go through according to their speed. They talk about how the first door is sleep and that's people's way of avoiding pain. In real life, that's a real thing. Like when people are depressed or, you know, grieving, they just tend to sleep a lot. Yeah, it's easy because you can just turn your brain off you don't feel anything and it's an immediate release right and that's it's kind of cool because you can interpret that either on a subconscious level or even consciously just like going to sleep and ignoring like the pain Mm -hmm. the second door is forgetting where you know some people like when you have a traumatic experience yeah you just block it out you can put up a mental block i mean and you can completely block things out entirely so you just 100 percent forget them like like they're still in your deep deep subconscious but you can also your memories can get cloudy around things that are stressful or, like, traumatizing. Yeah, they say, like, how some memories are just too painful. There's no healing to be done. Therefore, your mind just hides these doors and hides these wounds in your mind. Mm-hmm. They talk about the third door of madness, which I didn't even consider, but it makes a lot of sense when I was first reading this passage, where there's such traumatic events in some people's lives that genuinely just causes them to go insane. I had never really understood. The mind is obviously a really complicated thing, Mm -hmm. but in such simple terms, it made a lot of sense. Like someone experiences something so severe that it it breaks their mind, basically, which is the same way that you react to a bodily stress. So if you experience something that's super stressful physically, it can break parts of your body. So if you experience something that's so mentally stressful, it can break parts of your mind. And I'm not 100% sure if that's how it would be described in a psychological way, but it makes perfect sense. I think it's well done and fascinating. It also kind of foreshadows the people who are trying to learn naming, which Ben also mentioned is that like some arcanists go crazy. Yeah. The good ones are a little wacky, but like a lot of people just crack under that kind of pressure. And we see that much later in the book at the university. And so the final door they talk about is the door of death. And it's the final resort. Nothing can hurt you after you're dead. What a what an intense way to start chapter 18, but that's what we're kind of going on with. So we have Kavoth wandering through the woods, and he's just hollow. He's empty. He's Like I said, he's in kind of an animal-like state of just focusing on instincts of... Food, water, shelter. And so we have him going to the woods, and there's these like really interesting little tidbits where he's going to the woods and he's like subconsciously kind of like hearing all the voices of his family and people he's known through his life talking to him when he comes across different things in the woods, like someone saying, This is Sagebeard, you can tell by the edge, or if you're gonna have water, you need to boil it. This is willow. You can chew on the bark to lessen pains. It's bitter and slightly gritty. This is itch root. Don't touch the leaves. It's perfect because he's filling up his mind with things that are immediately important to his survival, but also not... Like, he's trying to focus so hard on something that's not thinking about what happened to his family. Yeah. It's definitely like a defense mechanism his mind is doing for him to keep him alive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, disassociating. Yeah. But he has, I don't know if this is a dream. Oh, yes, it is. One of the characters in this kind of dream sequence is someone named Lackless. And we've already come across Lackless and Lockies. 
So he was one of the characters that people theorized might have been sent as part of the emir to interact with Kavu from a young age and, oh, and cool. equip him with skills because the other character, Ben, equipped him with knowledge from the university. This character, Lapith, is equipping him with general survival, like wilderness survival tactics. I forget who the other character, I think it might be Scarpy who comes up in the next episode, but basically equips him with knowledge. Yeah. So I don't know. It's a fan theory, but I think it's definitely interesting to notice the repeating names and names that sound similar and how these characters might be grouped because Patrick Rothfuss is such a deliberate writer that he's not throwing in characters that aren't important. And especially to give a character a name. Yeah, it means that they're influential in a way. Mm -hmm. Like it wasn't just somebody who he remembered from his past or provided this knowledge in any kind of... He wasn't like, oh, you know, my dad taught me this or somewhere I learned this. Like it's a very specific character with a name that sounds like Lockless. So I think that's important to note. The end of the chapter he gets... He mentions that he has a canvas sack, a knife, string, wax, a copper penny, two iron shims, and rhetoric and logic, his clothes, and his father's loot. So, like I said, he doesn't really have anything else. The basic survival package. <laughs> uh, wax and string, you know. Well, from a sympathy point of view, it's useful, but for realistic survival, it's a whole other issue. Mm-hmm. So, he just kind of sets up a little area where he can stay. He gets some water. He's collects some wood. He sets some snares for some rabbits. He eats some leaves. And then the last paragraph actually talks about how he catches a rabbit. And then he's like pretty excited that he's caught some food. But then as soon as he takes out his knife and like thinks of the blood and how it would feel on his hands to skin and eat this rabbit, he vomits. And like that's kind of the first time he brings up. The trauma he's been through so oh yeah he can't even do he it. can't do it and that's a very humanizing moment mm-hmm. for him and i think not that he was ever like a cold-blooded killer but you know due to the trauma he's been through there's no way he can harm another being so there's that whole part where he's kind of going through the psychological um guide of like all the people he's encountered it's like mm-hmm. this snare will catch a rabbit this snare will kill a rabbit yeah so he decides to set one that will kill it for him so he doesn't have to do it Because obviously he knows he needs to survive, but he just can't stomach it right now. So he makes a little shelter under a graystone and hides the loot in there. And that's the end of this chapter. Chapter 19. Fingers and strings. (laughs) (laughs) How did you read that? It's so weird. I don't know. I was going for, like... Sam's nervous. No, I'm not. (laughs) Just trying to make it sound like... Refined. <laughs> What's that club in the office? The Finer Things Club? Yes. That's us. Just kidding. <laughs> President and CEO of the Finer Things Club. You're both? Yeah. What am I? My servant. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, servant, take it away. Ah, Alright. <laughs> Chapter 19, Fingers and Strings. He eats a rabbit, he eats some strawberries, he digs for roots. I know, I know. Kvothe is just living in the woods. He is thin. He's ragged. We're not sure how long he's there. It's kind of an indeterminate amount of time. But what he's filling his time with is playing the lute. And he's... He played it as a kid with his parents. But it definitely was like his father's 
lute and his father's instrument, so I don't think he really was well-practiced with it. But like Ben said, he did pick it up and learn it and didn't really repeat mistakes. So he's playing, he's building up calluses on his fingers. So it's just, I think he's getting so into his music that it's his way of remembering his family and honoring them without actively having to just sit there and think about them with nothing to do. Yeah, it's something he could fixate himself on. And it's kind of awesome and beautiful where he's mourning and he's playing all this music as a way of just kind of coping yeah just getting through it all yeah so he plays for hours and hours he's playing the songs he knows from memory then he plays the ones he kind of half remembers and fills in the parts and then he gets to this really beautiful part where he begins to play i guess feelings so he says i plays i play plays i plays (laughs) i plays the music (laughs) this chapter took a turn i know all right he plays on jeez he plays the feeling of the sun warming the grass, the breeze cooling you. He plays sun setting behind the clouds, bird taking a drink, doing the bracken. And he he says in the third month, so he's been in the woods for at least three months. I think by the time he emerges from the woods, he's there for a total of six months, is when he plays feelings about his family. So singing with father by the fire riding in the wagon with Ben, mother smiling, and it's, he says it, playing these things hurt, but it hurts, like, the way his fingers were hurting on the strings. It bleeds, but then calluses over and helps him move forward. It's his first journey into acknowledgement and slight amount of healing, and in a weird way, this is also kind of a subconscious beginning of him with naming because mm-hmm. he's taking something that's indescribable and finding a way to describe it without words. Yeah, it's definitely putting him in the correct state of mind that you need for naming. So he's later on at the university, he struggles so much with the concept of naming because it's something he wants to learn from a book or get like a set of instructions to do, which is odd because that's not how he ever really learned as a child. But once he gets to university, I think he wants to follow kind of like proper steps and procedures and he really struggles with this concept of learning naming and learning the true names of things and I think if he'd been able to understand that a name isn't necessarily a word it's kind of an essence and a feeling that's essentially what he's doing here with his loot and it's just frustrating to see him understand the concept but then later in life totally miss the mark when he tries yeah, to learn like you're so you're like you're right there i know he's so know close it. you're so close but you're just not seeing it in quite the right way yeah later on when he finally is experiencing naming in this whole process i i, I always think of this and how he's basically naming through music with through music yeah it's really cool unfortunately then one of the strings breaks on his lute so he can't repair it and relearns all of the songs with one less string. But then another string breaks while he's playing Waiting While It Rains, which is one of his feeling songs. And he takes the string off and immediately learns to play again. So he's down to five strings um, from seven. But then a third string breaks and he tries to do this again and realize that it's just... It's too much. It's just too much. So this is what causes him to leave the forest. His plan is to follow a road to a town, but he doesn't know where he is. He says he's somewhere in the Southern Commonwealth, and I think all of the books have a map at the front. Yes, uh, the Commonwealth is gigantic. There's Kaeld, the Commonwealth, Yul, 
The Small Kingdoms, Vintus, and Modeg. Oh, and the Aturan Empire. Jeez. Oh, and the Ademrae. They're kind of separated by this mountain range, though. Yeah. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. I'd say right now he's currently somewhere, because he's in the southern portion, he'd be south of Annalyn. Yeah, he's probably east of the university and east of Tarbian and travels kind of southwest towards them. Wait, Tarbian? Tarbian. Oh my goodness, that's funny. Just because, like, once again, those words that you just read and you don't say out loud to anyone, I always just read it as Tarbian. <laughs> <laughs> I I listened to it on audiobook and the guy says it Tarbian. That sounds way better than Tarbian. Tarbian, yeah, it sounds way better than Tarbian. <laughs> oh man. And on that note, we'll end chapter... No, we're not done with the chapter. He's following a road. At first, he doesn't really see anyone. He slowly starts to see people. And every time he sees them, he runs and hides. He's not used to seeing other people. He's skittish. It's almost an emotional hurt for him to see other people because he feels so outside of a family or any kind of kin group. Yeah, it's been months since he's interacted with other people. Yeah, but eventually... There's just too many people. So he runs into this farmer and his son, who are definitely kind of country. I don't want to call them country bumpkins. I'm not sure if that's rude or not. But they have... Rustic folk. (laughs) (laughs) They're farmers. They're farmers. So they're going to the city to sell some squash. And they agree to give Kvothe a ride. It's just such a small moment of kindness. The guy gives him some bread and butter and Kavoth like savors it. It's the first time in months he's had anything that wasn't wild yeah. leaves or animals that he caught. And he's already learning these kind of survival instincts because he eats half and saves the other half for later. He puts it away in his bag. And it's really sad because it's just the first kindness he's received in so long. And the man wants to hear Kavoth play kind of in return. Not necessarily in return, but um, you know, to pass the time. Yeah. Kavoth is very defensive. He holds the loot to himself and... And says it's broken, and the man isn't really, like, bothered by it. He just kind of goes, oh, okay, you know, whatever. And then he and his son start to sing Tinker Tanner, which is a song that comes up so many times throughout the book, and it's, it's like, the classic drinking song in the world. It brings Kavoth back to a time when he rode in other wagons and heard different songs. So it's very melancholy, but I think he's kind of come to terms with the fact that no matter how much he misses his old life, It's never coming back. And that ends this chapter now. Chapter 20, Bloody Hands into Stinging Fists. So this chapter is the start of a new setting, Tarbian, not Tarbeen. Tarbeen! (laughs) (laughs) Kvothe arrives there with the family of farmers who he'd been traveling with, and they take pity on him and offer him to return to their farm with him, and just kind of live on as a farmhand uh, and sort of semi-adopt him, which is really very kind of him. And I think Kavoth is tempted by it, but he's not really sure, as the narrator doesn't give a lot of clues as to how he's feeling about it. But he goes off into the city to get his loot fixed, and unfortunately immediately gets... Well, he gets lost. Lost. And then he basically gets jumped. Yeah, he gets jumped by these, like... Just, like, street rats, like, urchins. (laughs) I know. They're horrible. Little gremlin kids that are, like, feral and living in the city. Yeah, their names are Pike, Nalt, <laughs> very strange. Oh, and Lynn. There's a couple of dinguses. Yeah, so they jump Kavoth 
Just because they're, I think they're homeless. Yeah, and they see his loot case, they automatically assume it could be something valuable. Assume it could be really valuable. In the scuffle, they end up breaking the loot, which is just heartbreaking on so many levels for Kavoth. Because, oh. like, music is his life, it was his father's loot, and the only piece of him that he had left of his family. And not only that, but it's just a beautiful instrument, and for just to get destroyed by just horrible like street children is just so frustrating yeah Kavok gets really upset obviously and says that it's almost like losing like the same grief he felt when he lost his family he like experiences it all over again because it's the last little thing that he had of them and it was also his only way music was his way of keeping them alive with those little songs that he'd written about them and the yeah. feelings he had for them so to lose not only like the one last item but to lose the ability to play the songs that remind him of his family is just crushing. And he retaliates by biting this kid, Pike. These kids get chased off eventually by this City Watch guy. And Kavoth is knocked out. He comes to. And the City Watch is, like, rifling through his his pockets looking for money. It's so... The city's so corrupt. Yeah, it's just, it's just horrible. frustrating because you know it's just injustice and a couple, I think it's the next chapter, Kavoth talks about the city being divided into two sections. There's like the poor section and the rich section. And the, rich section, and, um... and the poor section is just dirty. There's corruption. People are all, like, nobody has each other's backs. And he goes into the rich section at one point and it's just totally different. Yeah. But it's very apparent. It's like any, like, big urban city. You'll see, like, the really sketchy deep pockets and then, like, the wealthier neck of the woods you know? oh absolutely it's it's frustrating though that even the people who are supposed to be authority figures don't care anymore like he's he's robbing a child yeah no it's horrible yeah he's like oh this is my payment for saving you a couple of shims whatever and he like coughs in his face and oh, it's, uh, just gross. It's, it's just gross gross terrible people kavoth is trying to hold back tears and frustrated and he is has like a little glimmer of hope because he does still have his bag with ben's book and a couple of other things and that piece of bread that the farmer gives him and that reminds him that he was supposed to go back and meet this family yeah to to live with them so i i suppose he decided he was gonna go live with them but he got beat up too late and like missed them so like the opportunity has gone it just completely slips through his fingers. So he ends up trying to fall asleep in the city. There's nothing's yeah, familiar because he's used to living in wagons on the road or in the woods now. And it's it's just a totally urban setting and like no one's friendly. No one's comforting. There's nowhere for him to make a fire or no roots to dig or no like plants to make a bed out of. So he's really out of his element here. He ends up falling asleep down like a dirty alley, and the sen- the chapter ends with the fact that that's the first night of nearly three years he spends in Tarbian. So he just gets sucked in because he's I, got no money, he's got no opportunity. To he's got nowhere do to go. Although I always got kind of frustrated, like he walked into the city, I and had all these survival skills. I, if I was him, I would have just walked out of the city. Maybe in a weird way, like, it's just part of his grief cycle and, like, how, like he's, like, in a way kind of punishing himself. Mm-hmm. 
for like maybe it's like survivor's guilt or just the fact that he's just kind of given up like life is just so shitty and rough for him that it's just like at this point whatever yeah from a book perspective it does make sense that he stays here because he learns so many things like pickpocketing and climbing and exploring cities and like Living on the rooftops, which all come rogue into play. Skill. <laughs> if this was like D and D, both would definitely be like the ranger rogue. Yeah, so a whole set of skills he didn't have before. And eventually, that are important. <laughs> but it's definitely the fact that he just doesn't want to be Kavoth anymore, and he's living in a way where it's like he's not using his brain, he's not using his acting skills, he's not using any of these assets that he had before because he just doesn't want to. Be, be himself, I think. Or I don't, think he wants to be I don't know if it's even like a conscious has. choice. He just isn't himself. Yeah. And so a boy he, is going through some stuff. Mm-hmm, right now. So he ends up staying in Tarbian for three years. Chapter twenty-one: Basement, Bread, and Bucket, or as Sam calls it, Hush Hush. <laughs> <laughs> it's Travis's like catchphrase. I know. And what what? What what? Hush hush. Hush hush. So this chapter starts with kind of cutting ahead in time to Kavoth existing in the city. He's trying to beg a meal from anyone, really. Yeah, just a lot of begging. He'll do pickpocketing, just anything he can do to survive. Yeah, he said he had tried... Oh, at this point, he's been in Tarbian for about a month. He tried pickpocketing and thievery a couple times and wasn't super good at it yet. So he was just begging for money. When he sees some other kids who are also homeless... Raggedy, just you can tell that they don't have a home. So basically his peers in this situation leave the area that they're begging and he's like, oh, if they're leaving this square, which is full of people because it's lunchtime and this is like probably the best begging time you're going to get, they've got to be leaving for something good. Yeah. So he follows them. He sees them go down to some steps and these boys come back up with some bread. And he's a little bit apprehensive, but hunger takes takes over and he just goes down there and he sees there's six beds uh, with children in them, some kids on the floor, but they're all not well children. No, they're sick. They either have like mental situations. Yeah. So it's, it's sad that they're stuffed the way down in a basement, but there's this character, Trappist, who's caring for them. He's just like the most selfless person. He walks around. I don't know if he's in religious garb he, they kind of describe him as wearing like robes so i assumed yeah. he was some sort of monk they kind of describe him being like an ex telling priest because of the gray robes you know it's just genuinely a really just gracious human being just taking care of the less fortunate yep and even like the kids who aren't staying there with him like kavoth and the other homeless boys they can go in and help trap us out and like i think kavoth just has to carry some water for him, and he says you can have as much bread as you want. So this guy's just completely selfless and very, very kind. Obviously, Kavoth gets some bread from him, so it's like a good place to know about in the yeah. city. But it's funny because he sees this character, Trappist, walking around with no shoes on. He's always got barefoot, and and the back of Kavoth's brain just kind of turns on for a second and does like a medical analysis. Yeah, I love this. So he... he Despite just having these needs that are taking over, like his survival needs taking over his brain, he does still have that knowledge in the back of his head and he wants to use it. It's just not time right now. Yeah, his mind's still awakening in a way. He's slowly reawakening through this time. Yeah, Trappist is just 
He's this is G. this character is just kind of like an introduction to him, and it's really sweet because Kavo talks about how these street kids don't really have anything that would ever unite them except for their love of Trappist, and if anyone were to ever hurt them, they'd all like join together, even though they're usually all enemies with each other because they're all fighting for the same scraps. Like they would join together and fight for him. The fact that they feel like he's the only person in the whole world who cares for them is really kind. No, everyone was definitely Team Trappist, and like if anyone jeopardized that, these kids would just like turn feral and like ruin mm-hmm. whoever like yeah. dared. <laughs> it's nuts. It's nice. Kavo says he doesn't visit very frequently, only when he really, really needs to go. Um, I think he's still kind of wary of other people, but he describes it as a little home he could always come back to. Yeah. Despite being a homeless orphan in the city with nowhere else to go. Chapter 22, A Time for Demons. But this whole theme of the episode of, like, everything just being really sad and just, like, (laughs) upsetting, this is probably, to me, one of, like, the saddest chapters of Kavoth's life and, like, his suffering. In this chapter, um, Kavoth decides to make a trip up to um, Waterside, which is... That's the the rich half of the city that we yeah, mentioned the, the last chapter. Yeah, the much wealthier part of the city. Bold move, kid. Yes, bold move. <laughs> and he sticks out like a sore thumb. So right now it's like December time, and there's like this Christmas time pageant. Is this? Are we sure it's December? Oh, I guess it's, it's winter. winter time. So so we haven't talked about the religion in this book at all. No, and they really haven't gone into that lore just yet. No, but so there's a few characters they mention in this chapter. There's Telu, who's like the main god figure. It's it's similar uh, tones of like a messiah or like Jesus-like character in this book. And then there's Ancanus, who's the main demon, who's a devil-like figure. Correct. But then there's also a lot of sub-demons that... I don't know if have names, but they're just kind of running around the city. It seems like what they do for their equivalent of I'm assuming a Christmas or winter holiday is it's like seven days where everyone in the city can put on these masks and pretend to run around and be the demons and cause mischief. And it's, it's allowed basically. Yeah. The church gives out the masks. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. And then the whole point is that someone is picked each year to play Telu, the God. Yeah. And he has to kind of walk around town and banish these demons and, it's a very theatrical thing, and I don't think we really do it in America, but I know other countries do pageants, like Christmas pageantries are a thing. Yeah, this is very similar. And not in the same way that like there's Christmas plays here, but um, it's like citywide, everyone's in on it. It's almost like a a mask or carnival kind yeah, of, where draw. like everyone's a part of it, and it's like across the whole city. Yeah. And Kavoth mentions even growing up that he and his troop had been hired to play the demons for smaller towns. Um, and his dad always played Ancanus, the main demon himself. Yeah. And he was very, like... Theatrical. The- theatrical, but they were very respectful. So they didn't just, like, come into a town and make mm-hmm. mischief. And he's that's one thing he noticed is that, like, it's just a little out of control because it's a huge city and everyone's running around causing problems, which they're allowed to do. So it's just really chaotic. Yeah, so in this wealthier part of town, Kavoth is doing some begging, and in front of a shop, he ends up talking to this woman who takes pity on him and gives him a fair amount of money, more money than he's ever had. Mm -hmm. And he's just, like, so thankful. And so as he's walking back, he catches catches the eye of the uh, guard. 
And like, well, he sees the guard talking to one of the shop owners and kind of overhears them. And the shop owner is mentioning something about, like, he's pointing at Kavoth saying, like, people aren't going to want to come to my shop if you're letting this kind of rabble rouser into our part of the city. Like, how could you let this happen? So, yeah, so Kavoth tries to book it and unfortunately gets caught by this guard because he's not used to being in the side of town, so he doesn't know the alleyways or how to navigate it as well as he would under his neck of the woods. Oh, I know. It's so frustrating because he says he's, like, learned the alleyways and kind of knows the city, even though it's a maze, and, like, how to navigate not only the streets but also the rooftops um, and climbing along walls and stuff like that. But now that he's in a, a new region, he can't do that, so he just runs down a dead end and gets stuck. And so this guard literally just beats the living daylight out of him. And he, Kavoth is literally like broken and bloodied on the ground and it's snowing. And he drops his money. Yeah, oh, that's like <laughs> even sadder. So sad. like, he drops the money. He's like trying so hard to hold on to the coin. Because his hands are so cold and wet in the snow while he was running. Like he can't even feel his hands. So loses the money, gets beat to a bloody pulp. He's like blinded for a little bit, right? Doesn't he get hit in the head? He gets hit in the head and his vision just blurry. So he's out cold, quite literally. And then he wakes up like in the snow and... Completely freezing. I just love the symbolism of this part. The person who plays Ikanis... Wait, he spends like 20 minutes like searching for his penny. Like even though he knows it's hopeless too because it's dark and his hands... He says his hands wouldn't even be able to feel it if he touched it. But he's still like hoping against all hope yeah and you know so he's at rock bottom at this point it's so sad that's true it's just like pure like despair and so but yeah the guy who plays Incanus the demon approaches him because like Kavoth is literally like fading in and out of consciousness at this point just because he's so like cold and broken and defeated and just hungry and just injured they're kind of like in a rush because he Candace and the man that he's with are like about to lead the parade. So there's about to be like a huge swarm of people like marching behind them. And Kavod is like, like half conscious where Candace is like, oh my God, this kid is like really hurt and he's freezing and cold and trying to help him. It's frustrating because the person, the woman he's with is trying to like get them to hurry along. Yeah. They're like, just leave him. Someone else will save him. And he's like, no. And so Candace Ends up giving him, like, a whole silver talent, which is, Which like, is even more money than he lost. And he gives him gloves. Yes! And it's just like, oh! And it's such a small kindness, and you know that that person playing in Candace probably wanted to do more. But it's it's one of those things where, like, so... I'm sure so many people would have walked by Kavoth and been like, somebody else will help him, somebody else will help him. And finally someone does, and you know that person wanted to do more than he could, but to Kavoth it meant actual survival like literally being able to afford food when he's in a state to not be able to go get it for himself and like getting gloves to protect his hands because they're to the point becoming frostbitten i believe yeah so the guy like rubs him up and down and tries to like get his blood flowing again and it's hurting even though obviously because he's been beaten up and i think he has probably some broken bones but it's just such a very tender moment and it's so fascinating that it comes from the man who's playing a demon. The man who's playing well. a demon. So I I noted this in the book. I listened to this on audiobook, but I went back through and literally like underlined a section. And he takes the money from the man playing in Canis and says that it reminded him of this scene in Dionica, which is a play where this character Tarsus sells his soul. Ugh. 
And I think that's fascinating because in the beginning when Chronicler came and was goading Kavoth on, remember he was saying all of those things, trying to get him to tell his story? Yeah. He says something about how people think Kavoth made a deal with a demon. Oh, that's right. Yeah, in order to have the power that he has. Yeah, so I don't know if this is... Just a cool parallel. A parallel? I don't know if it's foreshadowing or if... Yeah, I mean, in a way, maybe there's something that happens later on in the Fey Realm or who knows. Yeah, I don't know. I just thought it was really fascinating that he does actually make a monetary deal with a man dressed up as a demon, but people think he's done like an actual deal with the devil later in life to get his power. So I don't know. I just thought it was really poetic and very cool. And so our boy Kavoth has some money. He's clearly like on the brink of death, but he manages to find a restaurant where he goes into the back of it and talks to this girl and hands her his silver talon, begs for food and a blanket. And she returns with it pretty quickly because she sees how like banged up he is. They try to offer him space by the fire, but he's just so skittish at this point. And he's just so hurt and he just can't handle like being around people. And he like literally is like on the brink of tears and he just says no and like just takes these meager like items that he's paid for and just like runs back to like his hidden place under the like roof tiles. Mm-hmm. And it's sad because the girl's like crying too because she feels so bad, but I think she understands why he says no. Yeah. And it's a sad situation. But they they hook him up. He gets, like, a blanket. They give him a whole thing of spiced wine. They give him... Food, bread. A bunch of food. And they gave him all of the change from his talent. So now he has, like, smaller increments he can spend, which is probably good. Because if you're, like, a homeless-looking kid and you show up with, like, a $100 bill somewhere, people are going to be like, hmm. Yeah. But um, they helped him out a lot. And literally the last, like, couple acts of kindness from these strangers in these chapters are genuinely the only reason he survives. Yeah, I think without these people, he probably would have died in Tardine. So that is the end of this section for episodes today. I stopped it here because the next section is going to be chapters 23 through 32, which covers the end of his time in Tarbian, as well as several myths and stories that I really wanted to, like, group together. But hopefully we're done with the sad episode of all of the sad things. I tried to keep all of these chapters as one section. Yeah. And moving forward, we'll get into a little bit more exciting plot points and hopefully into some more of the great deeds and successes of Kavoth. I know. This is his bottom. He can only go up from here. Yes. So until next time, readers, stay happy and healthy and happy reading. podcast was recorded by Anna Opishinsky and Sam Furman, edited by Anna Opishinsky, produced by Anna Opishinsky and Sam Furman, with web page and artwork designed by Anna Opishinsky. 